So you walk into the first room of the day and you see that the patient has very concerning skin lesions. And you ask yourself, could this be MPOX? And then you pick up the next chart of a patient with abdominal pain and bloody diarrhea. And you wonder, could this be inflammatory bowel disease or maybe just run-of-the-mill infectious diarrhea? In this episode of Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine, we will talk about managing MPOX, specifically how to diagnose it and how to treat it in high-risk patients. We will also address inflammatory bowel disease and diverticular disease, including complications as well as its management. With you is Dr. Danya Kocha. I'm an emergency physician who works in Florida. And this is Dr. Wendy Chang, an emergency physician and neurointensivist in the Baltimore, Washington area. And this is the February episode of Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine podcast. And if you don't know what that is, what are you waiting for? We are ASAP's official CME publication, and each month we discuss two lessons that can be cutting edge or bread and butter emergency medicine. There are more than just two lessons. There are also a lot of other features, such as the critical ECG, critical cases in orthopedics and trauma, and much, much more. So starting with our first lesson today, skin deep, managing MPOX. Thank you to doctors Jacob Gianuzzi, Ernesto Weissen, Brendan Wasinski, John Downing, Alexis Borelli, and Jonathan Martin for writing this lesson. It's about time we talked about this disease. I guess we were just tired of the 2019 pandemic that we really didn't feel like talking about the 2022 WHO Global Public Health Emergency. And even now we call it MPOX. So what's the deal with that? Well, the original name was monkeypox, but on November 28, 2022, the WHO recommended to change the name to MPOX to mitigate a rise in related racist and stigmatizing language associated with that ailment. That makes sense. So where did it come from? Well, it's always been there. It's not like it's a new disease. Prior to 2022, it was actually endemic to Central and West Africa since the 1970s. However, in 2022, we saw a concerning increase in the non-endemic area, which is Europe and the Americas. And the tricky part about this disease is that it is so nonspecific, which makes the diagnosis quite tricky. Things like fever, fatigue, myalgia, lymphadenopathy. And after that, the mucocutaneous lesions develop. And the transmission can be direct contact with the lesions and bodily fluids infected humans and animals, not just sexual activity, which is a very common misconception. The great news is that the numbers have been slowly decreasing, and it is no longer considered an emergency as of last month. That's great. So what are the phases of MBOX? Well, an important thing to remember is that the classic strain differs from this new epidemic strain. For the classic strain, you have three phases. One is the incubation phase, which lasts for a mean of two weeks, but can be up to a month. The prodromal phase, which is like one to four days of fever, fatigue, headaches, and then the eruptive phase, and that's the rash, which is two to four weeks. I see. So now let's try to do this on, obviously, our audio podcast. How would you describe this rash? Well, the rash appears as macules that progress to papules, vesicles, and pustules. And they eventually desquamate to form areas of hypopigmentation followed by hyperpigmentation. And these lesions typically progress together through the stages of development. And they are like firm with an umbilicated center and they're associated with pruritus and myalgia. That's the typical story. The distribution is in a centrifugal distribution concentrated on the face and extremities. And the article has fantastic images. And these typical pictures are the ones you see in children and young adults. 
What about the epidemic form? How is it different? Well, that's how it gets really tricky. The prodromal phase may not even be present at all. And the lesions, instead of progressing together at the same rate, they progress at different rates. So you'll find them in various stages of healing, similar to the other pox, chicken pox. And the lesions may not actually be a lot. They may be fewer in number, making them even more challenging to figure it out. The different distribution in this disease may actually be in like the perianal and genital region, followed by the face and mouth, and less commonly the hands, feet, and chest. So if it's just a rash, what's the big deal? The complications are the big deal. Most commonly, you have superimposed cellulitis, which is whatever, it's cellulitis. But there are some scary things like pneumonitis and keratitis that can actually lead to vision loss. There are some neurocomplications as well, such as mood disturbances and neuralgia, and seizures and encephalitis may occur in patients, especially if they're immunocompromised. Ooh, definitely worse than just a rash then. Let's get better at identifying this. The million dollar question is, how are we supposed to differentiate it from the other pox, chicken pox and obviously smallpox? All right, so with chicken pox, they're really fragile. They're thin-walled, they're clear, fluid-filled bristers. But with mpox, they're deeper, they're firmer, they're rubbery. And that's because they're not filled with actual like liquid, but with cell debris. And that's kind of the rubberiness, thickness of it. As for the distribution, chickenpox rarely involves the palms and soles, whereas mpox does. Finally, the timeline of the lesions. With chickenpox, they're usually healed in like five to seven days, and at most 14 days. With mpox, it's a lot longer. The average is 14 to 28 days, and in those that are immunocompromised, it can actually be longer than that. Now for the smallpox, that has thankfully been eradicated by 1980. The lesions themselves are actually not distinguishable. But in smallpox, they're more abrupt. Everything appears in 36 hours, and then nothing extra appears. The prodrome may be a little different, so it'd be like flu-like symptoms or GI symptoms. And finally, which is, in my opinion, the most important differentiating feature, is that in mpox, the eruption is really the final stage. There's nothing that happens afterwards. And then, you know, like if the complications, it's kind of the same timeline. But with smallpox, it can take four distinct clinical courses after that, ordinary, modified, malignant or hemorrhagic. And that's why smallpox sucks. Agreed. Are there any other rashes that are commonly confused with mpox? I wouldn't have thought that this would be the case, but apparently scabies are frequently confused with mpox. The lesions themselves may look similar, but the distribution is quite different. With scabies, they tend to be along skin folds, such as like the wrist, interdigital spaces, belt line, luteus sulcus, and so on. Great tips. Any other differential considerations? Just like we always say, if you are exposed to one sexually transmitted infection, then you've been exposed to all sexually transmitted infections. If the suspected mode of transmission is sexual contact, you would need to think of other STIs, especially the rashy ones like herpes and syphilis, because they can look quite similar. All right. So let's say we've memorized all these photos and tips and strongly suspect mpox in a patient. How do we confirm this diagnosis? Well, swap the lesion or exudate and send it for PCR testing, and that is the WHO recommendation. Technically, you can also send an IgM or IgG within like five to eight days of the presentation, but that's not really used in clinical practice and not the WHO recommendation. Got it. So now we've diagnosed it. How do we treat it? Well, there are several indications to start patients on antivirals. Severe disease or being at high risk for severe disease, involvement of sensitive anatomical sites such as the oropharynx, rectum, anus, eye, or CNS. A severely immunocompromised person, young age, especially if they're younger than eight, being pregnant or breastfeeding, 
and comorbidities of chronic skin diseases such as atopic dermatitis or psoriasis. Other patients are okay with just supportive treatment because it's quite a self-limiting disease, unless they develop complications, of course. Things like NSAIDs and acetaminophen, if it's particularly painful, with like tonsillitis and proctitis, and any other supportive treatment we would do for patients with similar conditions that are from different causes. Okay, so what medications do we have available to treat this? So we do have a couple of options that were originally developed for smallpox. The first one, and that's the number one recommendation, is tecoviramat, which is available as PO and IV. If that doesn't work, or if there's a strong contraindication, then the second line would be brincidofovir, or something that sounds like it. And that's a PO medicine, and its sister drug is cidofovir, which is IV. Now we must monitor LFTs with these drugs, and with the IV form, it's also quite nephrotoxic, which is why it's the number two. Now, if patients continue to have severe symptoms despite taking these two drugs, then there's an IV immunoglobulin that can be used that's from patients who are vaccinated. Gotcha. What about contagiousness? How long are people contagious? Just like chicken pox and shingles until the lesions crust over and fall off. Okay. So not that we'll really be doing this in the ED, but in case somebody asks, what is the vaccine and who should get it? So there are two vaccines. There's the original smallpox OG vaccine. That's called the scarification technique, where you have multiple punctures and then an open sore develops at the injection site. And that's something that you don't see in people anymore. If you have an older family member, they may remember it or they may actually show you the scar. Very, very different than how we do vaccines these days. The second one is a smallpox mpox vaccine, which is a third generation derivative. There are two doses, subcutaneous, 28 days apart. These vaccines are indicated in adults who are either considered high risk for severe disease or have high risk of exposure. So sex workers, military personnel, lab workers. The OG vaccine can also be used as post-exposure prophylaxis. There's a lot of nuances and differences between these two vaccines, and there's a great table in the article that details those differences for further information. Well, thank you, Dania, for taking us through this very informative article. I learned a lot. I think that a few take-home points that I would walk away from this is that while we think about MPOX with the recent epidemic, we still need to consider other poxes like chicken pox as well as smallpox, as well as other SDIs with rash forms. And so some ways to help us differentiate that are the appearance of the rash, such as the fact that chickenpox is more fluid-filled, whereas MPOX is more firm, rubbery, because they're filled with cellular debris, and the timeline of the rash. Like you mentioned, really the eruption of the rash is the last portion of the MPOX phases. In terms of diagnosis, if you're highly suspicious, you can swap the lesion or the exudate and send it for PCR testing. And then in terms of treatment, there are several antivirals, like you mentioned, tecoviramat is the number one recommendation as it's available in PO and IV. Other antivirals are also available, though they have hepato and renal toxicity that we have to watch out for. And in terms of other recommendations we should provide for our patients, telling them that they could be contagious until all the lesions are crusted over and fall off, and whether they should be considered for potential vaccinations based on a high risk for the severe disease. Well, great summary of a great article. Now shifting gears to something completely different and quite scary. Our critical ECG this month is of somebody who comes in with chest pain at home, is chest pain free, and you look at their ECG and you're like, oh, they just have some T wave inversions in the anterior leads. There's no ST elevation, there's no ST depression, there's no biggie, right? It's they're fine. They are not having symptoms. They're not ischemic. Well, we are wrong. 
Wellens syndrome is what we need to worry about. It is something that's caused by critical stenosis or lesion of the LAD. And 75% of people who have this finding are going to develop an anterior MI. And these changes are thought to represent reperfusion from that ischemia. So if you have type A, those are the biphasic T waves, and those come in early. And then after that, they turn into deeply inverted T waves, which is called type B, the more common form of Wellens. And these patients need to be cathed because if they stress test, they may actually die, which is unfavorable. Agreed. Not advised. So it's important to keep in mind that these patients are chest pain free and have negative troponin. So they're not having active ischemia. But like we mentioned, they certainly have risk for developing acute MI. The differential to also keep in mind are left ventricular hypertrophy, pulmonary embolism, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, intracranial hemorrhage, and a right bundle branch block. The article has great images and more details on how to exactly diagnose it. So definitely take a look to make sure that that EKG does not get missed. So now to the LLSA literature review. We're reviewing the article by Long et al. that was published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2021, which was entitled Oncologic Emergencies, Palliative Care in the Emergency Department Setting. In my opinion, this is a long overdue article because this is a topic that's close to my heart. Absolutely. End-of-life care really is aiming to provide quality care by maximizing comfort and alleviating distress while respecting patients' wishes to avoid aggressive, life-sustaining treatments. It is definitely an important and common part of healthcare, even in the emergency department. So in terms of first things that we can try and do, advanced directives and goals of care really should be confirmed for every patient we take care of. If it's not already documented, we should discuss it and develop end-of-life care plans with the patients and their healthcare proxies. And even when it is documented, there are times where we may still need to clarify what it really means for the patient in that specific setting and document it additionally in the medical record. Great plug for ensuring that we understand what patients want. How do we know we're at the end of life? I feel like this is something that when we see it, we know it, but there are some symptoms and signs we can watch out for. And so if the patient is developing anorexia, asthenia, which is the lack of energy, dry mouth, confusion, those symptoms suggest that there's really a short survival time left for the patient. In patients with advanced malignancies, maybe symptoms of dyspnea, tachycardia, and hypotension, also are associated with being near the end of their life. Great tips. So let's talk about symptoms management at the end of life. What are common ones and how do we take care of them? Dyspnea is the most common symptom that really distresses the patient and their families, but can be really well managed by using opioids. And despite common belief, opioids do not hasten death when it's used in correct doses. And so this is talking about maybe one to two milligrams IV morphine, but really it depends, of course, on the patient's pre-existing opioid tolerance and such. This will decrease the sensation of breathlessness and anxiety. Benzos can also be used in select groups. Using oxygen for comfort doesn't really help. And then sometimes the patients can have quote-unquote death rattle or just really pulling a secretion in the airway causing that noisy breathing, and that can be treated with glycopyrrolate. All right. Well, how about pain? That can be common as well. 
Very true, especially in our patients with uh, oncologic conditions. And pain definitely can be managed with opioids, but don't forget using non-opioid alternatives can also be considered, especially if you're dealing with nociceptive or bone-related pain. NSAIDs, acetaminophen, or low-dose intravenous ketamine are options. Gabapentin, anticonvulsants, and antidepressants can also be effective for neuropathic pain. Great summary of a great article. I would definitely go back to that article and look at all of those details if you haven't already. So for our critical cases in orthopedics and trauma this month, it's a case of ankle pain after this patient had a single vehicle motorcycle crash. So he tried to plant his foot on the ground to stabilize the motorcycle and then developed a severe pain. And when he presented to the ED, he had a closed deformity of his hind foot with medial foot displacement and skin tenting over the distal fibula. You had me at tenting because nothing should be tenting ever. So this is a case of septalar dislocation, which is rare and is associated with a plantar flexed foot. Often, there are injuries to the malleoli, the fifth metatarsal, and the talus itself. Obviously, because of the high energy mechanism that's involved in causing the septalar dislocation, we need to evaluate for all of those other injuries quite carefully. Now, the way we can actually reduce this dislocation is by, first of all, we need to reduce the tension on the gastrocnemius. And the way we do that is we flex the hip, flex the knee, and then we accentuate the deformity. And then, pop, we apply direct pressure on the talar head. I'm not sure if that's the sound it makes. Um, If it does, that sounds very satisfying. The problem is that it has a high rate of complications because 50 to 80% develop post-traumatic arthritis and only 20% regain full range of motion. So definitely something to watch out for. Yes, don't plant your foot to stabilize the motorcycle. (laughs) How are you supposed to get off of a motorcycle, Wendy? (laughs) You can't just like fly off of it. Good thing I don't get on motorcycles. (laughs) Clearly, because then you're not using your feet to get off the motorcycles and they break. (laughs) So keeping up with the ortho theme, but away from the motorcycle theme, our critical procedure this month is reduction of a nursemaid's elbow. And I don't know about you, Wendy, but this is an incredibly satisfying procedure. Yes, they make that boop sound. <laughs> well, those do. And nursemaid's elbows are basically just like subluxation of the radial head. And you just pop it back in and you're done. Now, to be super clear, when there's an associated fracture that is not what we're talking about, and that is not a nursemaid's elbow, completely different conversation. There are a couple of techniques that you can use in case only one of them does not work. The most common approach is something called the supination flexion technique. And there's also the hyperpronation technique where you flex as well a little bit as needed. However, you may actually want to use the hyperpronation technique as your first attempt because it may be more successful. Yes, the studies are limited, but just give it a try. At the end of the day, they're both quite simple. For the supination flexion technique, you basically hold the child's elbow at 90 degree angle with one hand and you supinate the wrists and flex the elbow. Ta-da! After that, you just move it around and make sure it's working. For the hyperpronation technique, you hold the elbow at 90 degree angle, just like you started with the first one. And then you quickly hyperpronate the wrist using the other hand because the speed and the force are what you need. You may want to also flex the patient's elbow afterwards as you do with the other supination flexion technique. 
at the end of the day, this should be quick and should not be that stressful. The hardest part is actually dealing with the anxiety that both the child and the parent may have, which may be decreased by the caregiver holding the child during the procedure. So definitely consider doing it while they're holding their kid. Great tips. Does everyone need an x-ray? Not really. If there's an actual trauma involved or there's redness and swelling, or you've tried a couple of times, it's not successful, then get an x-ray to make sure you're not missing some occult fracture or something else that's going on. Otherwise, there's no need. There are some people who advocate that the child gets a 24-hour follow-up to make sure that they continue to look good and they continue to move their elbow okay. And if at that time there are any suspicions that something is not actually going well, then they can get an x-ray. That makes sense. So keeping up with the pediatric theme, our clinical pediatrics this month is of a splenic laceration. And it's a story of a teenage girl who was a belted rear passenger in a heads-on MVC. She was tachycardic, had a seatbelt sign, had left upper quad and tenderness, and had a positive fast. It's a good reminder that children can lose almost half of their circulating blood volume before developing hypotension, so tachycardia may be the only presenting sign of intra-abdominal trauma. And the spleen is the most commonly injured intra-abdominal organ in pediatric abdominal injury since their rib cage doesn't fully protect the spleen. Stable patients with a positive fast should get a CT prior to any intervention that's planned. In low-risk patients, you may consider observation with serial fasts, but that's definitely something that needs to be coordinated with your surgical consult. There are also other pearls in this article about the categorization of splenic lacerations. In keeping up with the pediatric theme, but moving on to something that's a little smaller and maybe maybe scarier, it's a case of a six-day-old full-term female infant who comes in with bright yellow-green vomiting after feeding. And then while in the ED, she does that three more times. The abdominal x-ray shows a prominent gastric bubble. Ooh, so it's bilious vomiting in a baby. That doesn't sound like hypertrophic pyloric stenosis. And so if we're working up vomiting within these first days of life, the American College of Radiology recommends using abdominal x-rays as the initial imaging. And if there's still uncertainty about the diagnosis, you can get a fluoroscopic upper GI series if you're worried about a proximal obstruction or a fluoroscopic contrast enema if you're worried about distal obstruction. In this case, the upper GI series showed that the contrast reaches the duodenum but then does not progress, even after waiting for 30 minutes, which indicates a high-grade duodenal obstruction. She was taken for an X-lap, which found a malrotation with a mid-gut volvulus. Super scary diagnosis, which occurs usually in the early neonatal period, so more than 50% of cases occur within the first month, and it has a high mortality of 20 to 40% which means that they need rapid evaluation and treatment. Yikes. And keeping up with GI issues, our second lesson of this issue is gut feeling, emergency presentations of inflammatory bowel and diverticular diseases. Thank you to Drs. Alexander Kleinman, Monica Lopez Islas, Shruti Chandra, and Bernard Lopez for writing this article. You know, more than 1% of the U.S. population have inflammatory bowel disease, and there have been an increase in the ED visits related to IBD. So I think it's pretty important to differentiate it from common diverticular diseases. So let's start with basics. First things first, what is IBD? Well, inflammatory bowel disease refers to Crohn's disease as well as ulcerative colitis, 
which are inflammatory conditions that are essentially affecting different parts of the GI tract and different layers of the bowel wall. In terms of Crohn's disease, this can affect the entire GI tract, more commonly the terminal ileum in a third of the cases and the colon. Classically, we learn about the fact that this causes uh, discontinuous skip lesions. The inflammation, though, affects all layers of the bowel, so this leads to ulcerations and then puts the patient at risk for developing fistulas, abscesses, and even perforations. Whereas ulcerative colitis, it's typically limited to the rectum and the colon, and it is continuous within this area of inflammation, so there are no skip lesions. It only involves the mucosa and the submucosa, so the injury is really superficial. It can have superficial ulcers, and their inflammation process tends to have a slower onset and waxes and wanes in intensity. There's definitely overlap, though, in the presentation. So up to 20% of cases are diagnosed incorrectly at first. Wow, that's quite concerning. So how about diverticular disease? We're familiar with this condition in developed countries related to low-fiber diets. And the diverticula really happens from these large bowel submucosa that really herniates through the muscular layer of the bowel wall. And it, of course, puts you at risk for bleeding when there's erosion of those small blood vessels, as well as inflammation that happens from kind of trapping of the undigested food and stool in the little diverticular pouches. In terms of the bleeding, it actually causes, you know, a fourth of the cases of acute lower GI bleeds. And we definitely see this becoming more prevalent with our aging population. too. Great reminder. So how do patients with inflammatory bowel disease present to the ED? They commonly come in with crampy abdominal pain and diarrhea, and the diarrhea is often bloody and can be mixed with mucus or pus. They can also have tenesmus and rectal urgency, and they can also present with systemic symptoms of malaise, fever, and weight loss. Now, it's important to remember that IBD actually can be associated with extra-intestinal manifestations, and this is up to a quarter of cases. There's a great table and article that outlines all of the extra-intestinal manifestations. Essentially, this can affect the eyes, the kidney, the liver, the hematologic system, musculoskeletal, and skin. So common ocular complications we think about are episcleritis, scleritis, and uveitis. Episcleritis is just simply inflammation of the superficial scleral blood vessels, and so this is usually unilateral and pretty benign. But scleritis and uveitis can result in vision loss. So if a patient with IBD comes in with any sort of a painful red eye complaint, that requires urgent optoconsult. Now, I learned that IBD is actually also associated with an increased risk for venous thromboembolic disease. There's one study that actually quoted more than four times more likely to develop DVT and PE and more than 15 times more likely during an active flare. So quite scary. Another disease process we have to pay attention to is biliary disease. So patients with ulcerative colitis have increased risk of developing primary sclerosing cholangitis. And so any IBD patient coming in, and if you find that they have an elevated elk foss, you should be quite suspicious of them having some sort of biliary disease, whether it is primary sclerosing cholangitis, cholecystitis, or cholelithiasis. 
Another thing to pay attention to is, of course, a lot of patients with IBD are being treated with immunosuppression. And so these patients then would be at risk for opportunistic infections or even hepatotoxicity, nephrotoxicity, or pancreatitis simply related to those drugs. Wow, quite scary, not something we think of often. Any other complications that we need to be aware of? Toxic megacolon can also occur. And this is just simply from this inflammation of their colonic smooth muscle layer. And this generally happens after a few days of their symptoms. So obviously these patients can present with abdominal pain, fever, chills, diarrhea. But if they have obstipation, that's a pretty bad sign. On imaging, you can find that their transverse or ascending colon can be dilated greater than six centimeters, which is part of the diagnostic criteria. And there's a great table in article two. Obviously, toxic megacolon can be quite serious with a high mortality. I mean, it's called toxic megacolon. Mega. Definitely sounds yeah. scary. I know, like super. <laughs> <laughs> so any management pearls for patients who are coming in with an IBD flare? A lot of it is supportive. If in terms of definitive treatment for the IBD itself, ideally you like to make this in conjunction with your GI consultants. And so there's grading that can be used to look at the severity of their symptoms based on you know how much nausea, vomiting, diarrhea they're having, weight loss, vital signs, etc. Essentially, if you're dealing with a mild to moderate disease exacerbation, these patients may need corticosteroids and oral corticosteroids may be sufficient. If you're dealing with severe disease that's unresponsive to oral corticosteroids, then they may need to be admitted for IV steroids. Now, if you're dealing with a patient with fulminant colitis, then you're really talking about needing GI and surgical consultations because some of these patients may actually need emergent colectomy. And as we mentioned, toxic megacolon can be a complication, and these are generally managed with bowel rest, fluid hydration, IV steroids, and broad-spectrum antibiotics. We do want to avoid opioids and anticholinergics in toxic megacolon, since that can worsen the colonic dilation, and these patients may also need decompression with NG tubes and rectal tubes. Quite scary and a great pearl about avoiding anticholinergics, because anticholinergics hide in everything. All right, let's move on to managing diverticular disease. How do we do that? Well, generally, when we're dealing with uncomplicated diverticulitis, traditionally, we've always used oral antibiotics, but newer guidelines actually suggest that we should be more selective as antibiotics really has not been shown to shorten the disease duration or prevent recurrence. So the populations we should really consider oral antibiotics are those who are immunosuppressed, the pregnant patient, obviously if they're septic, or if they have significant comorbidities. Now, if the patient has more complicated diverticulitis, such as those with peritonitis, bowel obstruction, or small abscesses less than five centimeters, they can be admitted for IV antibiotics or analgesia. And more severe complications, of course, may need surgical consultation again. And as we mentioned already, diverticular bleeding can be quite common. And these are generally painless bleeding that are usually self-limited. But re-bleeds can happen in a good proportion of patients. And some of the patients can actually have uncontrolled GI bleeding that actually will need surgery. Well, thank you, Wendy, for taking us through this article that does a great job of summarizing inflammatory bowel disease and diverticular disease in our emergency department. 
It was a great reminder that Crohn's disease involves all of the GI tract and not just the colon, and that the inflammatory bowel diseases are actually often diagnosed incorrectly in the initial part of the ailment. So just because somebody says they're Crohn's or ulcerative colitis does not really mean it's just that particular subtype. A quarter of patients with inflammatory bowel disease are going to have extraintestinal manifestations. The ones we really need to be aware of are things like episcleritis, scleritis, and uveitis. So if a patient comes in with a red eye, have a very low threshold of involving ophthalmology early. Patients can also have an increased risk of biliary disease as well as DVT and PE, especially while they're having an active flare. If a patient comes in with acute worsening of their symptoms and you're worried about a flare, steroids tend to be your first choice. PO or IV depends on how bad their flare is, and if they are having symptoms of fulminant colitis, have a low threshold of involving surgery early on because patients may end up needing a colectomy to help control their disease. Something to think of as well in patients with a severe exacerbation is toxic megacolon. In these patients, they need bowel rest, IV fluids, IV antibiotics, possibly decompression with like NG and rectal tubes. And in these patients, we need to avoid opioids and anticholinergics because they can actually worsen the condition. And those are patients with a very high mortality. Moving on to diverticular diseases, which are thankfully more common because they're not as bad usually. However, they do cause a quarter of lower GI bleeds that's coming from the diverticulosis piece of it. The diverticulitis piece where, you know, the diverticula, diverticulum gets infected, we tend to give people antibiotics, but data for that is quite questionable. So some people are now actually moving away from that. However, obviously, if they're septic or they have comorbidities, if they're pregnant or immunosuppressed, those are patients where you should not step away from the antibiotics. If a patient has peritonitis, they're systemically ill, they have a bowel obstruction, or they have an abscess, then they need to be admitted for IV antibiotics. Aptices more than five centimeters may need an intervention. As for those who are bleeding, 70 to 80% are just going to be self-limited, but rebleeds can occur in up to a third of them, and a small percentage is going to have an uncontrolled GI bleed that requires surgery. That's a great summary. Well, moving on to the drug box, the CDC's new guidelines for opioid prescriptions. Yes. In 2022, we got an update to use of opioid prescriptions for chronic pain. And this excludes sickle cell patients, cancer, palliative care, and end-of-life care. I think a lot of the takeaways we've talked about before in prior lessons, which is non-opioids are as effective and preferred for subacute chronic pain, and we should use immediate release opioids and the minimum quantity needed. Now, whenever you are providing a prescription, do remember to also evaluate and discuss risks with use of opioid prescriptions, including offering the patient naloxone. In the patient with chronic pain, and if you're using opioids for more than a few days, consider tapering that amount by 10% or less per month, especially if the patient has been using opioids for more than a year. Now, if the patient wants to detox from opioids, doing so without opioid use disorder medications is not recommended since that can actually increase the risks of resuming drug use, overdose, and death. Great pearls about opioid prescriptions. And last but not least, our Toxbox this month is about potassium chlorate poisoning, which is found in match heads. Not sure who has matches anymore. But match heads, dyes, fireworks, disinfectants, oh yeah, we have that, and herbicides. So they're toxic if more than one gram or more than 20 match heads are consumed in infants or more than five grams in adults. So that would be 100 match heads in adults. 
a conversation for another day, but that can cause GI irritation, hemolysis with methemoglobinemia, and renal failure. For methemoglobinemia, we give methylene blue at one milligram per kilo, and we can repeat it after one hour. But if a person swallowed match heads and has G6PD deficiency, then methylene blue is not really what you should be doing. In severe poisoning, you can do exchange transfusions, and if six hours post-ingestion they are fine and asymptomatic, they can go home with nothing blue and no match heads. I just looked it up. There are usually 40 matches in a matchbox. I think it really depends on the box. Where do you get matchboxes? <laughs> I have so many questions. People still get them. For what? Don't you have those like electronic thingies for the fi- for like the I candle? Know. I thought people still had matches. I don't. Okay, well now I know where the matches Not all are. <laughs> I feel like don't people go great. camping with matches? I don't know. I don't know. I do I look get... like I go camping? <laughs> Yeah, wet, I guess it's not very effective if wet. Regardless, if your house has matches, just be careful. Well, thank you, Wendy, for going through this issue with me. I've learned a lot. Our dear listeners, we hope that you've had as much fun listening to us as we've had recording this. We hope that you find the Critical Decisions publication as well as our podcast always informative, often enlightening, and never boring. Share your thoughts, questions with us on our social media accounts. My Twitter handle is at Danya Koja. Mine is at EM underscore NCC. And my Instagram is at Dr. Danya Koja. And my Instagram is at Dr. Wendy Chang. Very creative. <laughs> we look forward to hearing from you. And until next month. Bye-bye. <laughs>